Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week will be John 14 through 17. So for this first episode, we're going to finish off John chapter 14, which goes with what we covered last week in John 13, so that's the experience in the upper room. And in the second episode, we'll do chapter 15, 16, and 17, a study of of the Godhead and, and who God is. Before we dive into chapter 14, just a quick reminder, last week we covered John chapter 13, which was the beginning of the Last Supper in the upper room. And if you look at this from a, from a big perspective, from a bird's eye view, you have 13 and 14 in the upper room, then at the end of 14 he tells them, arise, let us go hence. Now they start walking through the city and then up the Kidron Valley as he discourses to them on various subjects. In verse chapters 15 and 16, you get to the top of the Kidron Valley, and before entering into Gethsemane, he pauses there in chapter 17 and gives the great high priestly or intercessory prayer in chapter 17. What I wanted to point out here is if you do some simple math and count this up, you have 13 through 17, five chapters, all take place within a few hours of time in a 33-year life of the Savior Jesus Christ. Five chapters out of John's total 21. We're we're right in the neighborhood of one-fourth of his entire gospel, of everything John, who is in the Savior's inner circle, everything he could have taught us, he's putting significant emphasis on this few hours of experience with Jesus right before going into Gethsemane. And then if you add chapter 18, which is John's account of Gethsemane, and 19, his account of the the trials and, and the crucifixion of Christ, if you add that to the mix, you're adding a few more hours of time now you're at seven out of 21 of John's chapters. That's one-third of the entire Gospel of John is taken up from the evening of Thursday when he goes into the Last Supper through early in the morning on Friday of the crucifixion, uh, just over a 12-hour uh, segment of Jesus's life, and we've got one-third of the time spent. So, I only pointed that out because I think we're going to see as we dive in that some of the greatest truths, some of the biggest theology that Jesus is going to share in his ministry comes at such a critical time when he's literally moments away from beginning his infinite uh, atoning sacrifice, beginning in Gethsemane. So as we move into chapter 14 of John, we're concluding this last supper that Jesus has had, and right here in verse 34 of John 13, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. 
Tyler has pointed out that Jesus is about to go engage in the most loving act of his entire life, and in the process of getting there, he is teaching how to experience and share love and how to know what love is and what truth is. It's very, so amazing. It's, it's incredible when you put it in that context and, and you look at how much time and energy and effort Jesus is putting into strengthening and buoying up his apostles at this late hour of his life when, I don't know about you, but, but when a, a huge deadline or a huge event that's going to be scary is looming, I'm, I'm not really focused on how other people are doing and how they're feeling and how I can strengthen them. I'm focused on me figuring out how I'm going to get through this, this big, terrible, or difficult event. Not Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I think there's more there than just, oh, don't, don't be afraid, don't be troubled. I think Jesus is preaching something that he's practicing. I think he's found ways, being the Son of God, to himself not be troubled in that moment when everything in his physical mortal being would be pleading with him to be troubled, and he's not allowing his heart to be troubled at that moment. I really love this word believe because of well, several core reasons. One, its etymology in English comes from two ancient words, be, leave. So this actually is a derivation from the word love. Notice how we talked about Jesus is trying to show and teach love, and when he asks people to believe, one of the essences of that meaning of the word is about love, and B means 100%. So when we believe God, we show that we are 100% love him. We want to be in a loving relationship. As we also consider the expansive covenantal context, of the word believe, it means to be in a faithful, loyal, fidelity relationship. So when he says, believe in me, he's encouraging him to think about how he and his father have been covenantally loyal and faithful to all of God's people for all time and eternity. And, there's, and Jesus is now saying, be like us. We have been loyal to you. We have shown you loved, we've believed in you, we have loved you, do the same. If you believe in me and join this loving relationship, you will have eternal love. And really, this is the essence of the gospel. It's love. Isn't it fascinating that, that we live in a world that's, that's providing us all kinds of causes, all kinds of doctrines and teachings, and encouraging us to believe them? Well, stop and think about it. If you believe an untruth, you now put your love and your focus and your time and your energy and your talent and your goals and your, your future vision in a direction that, that isn't going to deliver, it's not going to produce, whereas Jesus says, and believe also in me. It's put your love, put your focus 100% on me, trust me, believe in me, and then that will cause us to act in ways that would help us to become like him. Such a powerful concept here. Then verse 2, he goes on to say, in my Father's house are many mansions. Joseph Smith would use the word kingdoms, 
This verse, this concept is one that helped plant a seed in the mind of a prophet to begin thinking through and asking questions that would eventually lead to the revelation given in Doctrine and Covenants section 76 with the degrees of glory, that idea that it isn't just heaven or hell, and there's this dividing line between the lowest person in heaven and the highest person in hell where one sin separated them and wow, it sure it's rough to be that that guy that ended up in hell. It's that idea of, no, there are many kingdoms, many mansions that, depending on how we choose to live our life, will determine the kind of mansion, the kind of kingdom we end up in, tied into that incredible talk by President Russell M. Nelson called Choices for Eternity, that, that we, to a large degree, determine these these kingdoms that that uh, we're going to inherit one day through the grace and the merits and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The underlying Greek word conveys that essence. The underlying Greek word is uh, meno, in fact our word mansion comes from that word, but it literally means to remain or abide. You know about that song we sing, Abide With Me, where we invite Jesus to remain with us. So when Jesus says there's many places where you could remain, well, if you choose to progress to a certain point and then stop and say, I'm remaining here, there are many mansions in the Father's house, and God will absolutely protect your agency. If you choose to only get to this spot and remain there and abide there, he will, he will honor that. But if you want to go further and go further along the way of following Jesus and believing in him more, showing even more love and faithfulness, you will go farther and further into remaining in his presence. So he continues by saying, if it were not so, if I didn't have many mansions, many kingdoms, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also. Pretty powerful uh, promise. And whither I go ye know not. So this word receive, the underlying Greek word, also comes from the word of to take. So when you take something, you it, it's an agentive action where you're doing something to acquire something. So this idea of receive has in its essence that Jesus is proactively doing something to receive you. It's not him passively just sitting around and like, oh, look at these people who showed up in my mansion. He is proactively taking you, not to uh, overstep the boundaries of your agency, but he does everything in his power to bring you along. So this idea of we're talking about mansions, we're talking about kingdoms, keep in mind that in a gospel context, often we put all of our eggs or most of our eggs in the destination basket, this, this end goal. I, I want to go to heaven, I want to get to one of these kingdoms or to this, this mansion on high. The reality is, is that there are incredible experiences and incredible truths to be found, discovered, and enjoyed along the way, the journey versus that ultimate destination. Look at his wording here, verse 4, whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. 
And that's when Thomas asked him the question, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? We, you're talking as if we understand what you're saying, and we don't yet get what is the way. And I love the Savior's response. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The journey, the way, the path is Christ. The destination is Christ who then turns you to the Father. It's he is in and of and through this entire process as well as the destination. So the base meaning of, of jur is the word day. Every day matters. I get it. Some days are worse than others, and some days we're like, I can't wait for this day or week or month or year to end. The intention here is that every day we can experience the love of God. Every day we can love him back and love those around us. In the midst of suffering and trials and challenges, we can choose love. That is the way, as Jesus points out. And this is what we're going to see here in the next chapter or two, Jesus really honing in on how can you know or see the way that on a day-by-day basis you can be in that loving covenantal relationship with God and feel joy. So look at the three words that Jesus uses here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Think about the significance of him using this, this uh, precursor, I am, ego a me, this, this identity-forming um, phrase. I am, it, it, he's revealing his soul, his characteristics, his perfections, his attributes to us, and here we get three of them. I am the way. Don't think of a path think of me. Just do the things you've seen me do. I am the way. I am the truth. He he exudes truth. He embodies truth. He is the truth. Think about Father Lehi's dream in 1 Nephi chapter 8. He had the straight and narrow path. There was a rod of iron, and then there was a tree, and the tree was called the tree of life. I am the way the truth, and the life. Everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every step, I can't go any step forward in a direction that really matters, that's progression, without him. I can't define my own truth. I can't come up with my own realities. I have to find his truth and hold to it, hold fast, continually pressing forward, holding on to him, not just a, a rod of, of metal, a rod of iron. It's holding on to him that then helps me progress and move forward and back to our discussion of believe, which now brings me to him as the representation of the tree of life, where I now am given that opportunity to partake of the fruit of eternal life, which is the greatest of all of the gifts of God from Doctrine and Covenants, section 14, verse 7. Powerful concepts here, all of which are focusing us and his apostles at that very late hour of his life on him, 
as their saving redeemer because there's no other path that leads to the Father. So let's dwell just a bit more on the, this question from Thomas. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus had said, verse 4, I, whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. And then we see the way, the truth, and the life. So there's a fancy word that is used in the field of learning called epistemology. Now, I don't think it's going to show up on the final exam to get into the pearly gates. But this word essentially means the study of how we know. And these chapters here teach us how to be, how to acquire, or see, acquire, and be grounded in truth so we can know Jesus and know his love. So this chapter is about knowing and doing. And Jesus tries to demonstrate these things. So there's a couple of really interesting words. We talk about um, the way. In fact, uh, it, it's interesting. We have this word, method. And the latter part of this word means way or path. We talked about Jesus being the way. And the meta means to follow or what goes after. In fact, just as a little aside, one of the great ancient Greek scientists was a man named Aristotle. His teacher had been Plato, and Plato had, his teacher was Socrates. Aristotle was a great systematizer of knowledge, and he wrote a book about nature, everything you might find in nature, and the Greek word for nature is physics, so he wrote a book called Physics. Well, then he wanted to write a book about things that aren't found in physical nature. Maybe those are up in the heavens or in the ether or spiritual, and he didn't know what to call the book. So he literally called it the book that follows the book on physics or metaphysics. So if you ever hear people talk about metaphysics, that's where it comes from. The book that follows after the book on physics or the things that are in nature or physical or tangible. Where we're going with this is if you want to know something, you have to follow a path to get there. Imagine you're on a hike and with a friend, and you take separate directions up a mountain, and your friend gets to one overlook, and you get to another. And then you come back and share with each other your perspective of what you saw. Now, you might be looking at the same scene, but from different angles, and so you're going to have a different experience or a different set of knowledge about the same thing. Now, imagine that you get to, to the bottom of a mountain, and you meet a stranger who starts explaining what they know or what they see, but they can't tell you the path or the way that they got to where they know something. And Jesus wants us to be clear about what truth is and how to get there. We can use this in our world today. We have a world full of lots of ideas and in some cases a lot of confusion and misinformation. And it's important for everybody that we can document and or identify the path that we followed, the method we used to gain our knowledge or insight. If you can't explain to somebody or to yourself how you got to where you're at and why you see things the way you do, nobody else can follow that path and get to that same knowledge. Furthermore, if you have somebody trying to convince you of something and they also cannot share a method with you that's repeatable and visible and useful, 
for you to also follow that path and to see how they see things, it'll be very difficult for you to share or participate in their knowledge. So let's tie this in to the epistemology or the methods of God. What is our epistemology for how we know truth? And I learned this from a friend yesterday. Her name is Joan Bourne, and she shared this really powerful scripture with me that I've read a lot of times, but I never realized it was teaching about epistemology, about how to know all truth. And listen to what Nephi says. Now, we've been talking about life, the tree of life. That's 1 Nephi chapter 8. Nephi then wants to have his own experience. He wants to follow the path that his dad has followed and see his dad has seen. So he also has a vision of the tree of life. And the angel is working with Nephi to know things. And he asks Nephi a question. And Nephi says this, I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Wow, that's powerful. Nephi's epistemology, or the foundation for what he knows, is grounded in the love of God. Nephi recognizes, I don't know everything, but if I start with the love of God, that I do know, and from that I can build into knowing anything else. Think about how this connects here. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. Love. Love one another. This is how you demonstrate the method or the path for people to know God, that they too can also see his love. We should tie this into the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, the title likely means in ancient Egyptian, the Book of God's Love Endures Forever. So in your life, if you want to know more and see more truth, perhaps we could follow the method of Nephi by being grounded first in the epistemology or in the foundation of knowing that God loves his children and I can be secure in that truth and that truth will then allow me to have the experience with all other truth that is good, lovely, praiseworthy, and of good report. As we move forward into the chapter, some of the things you might look for are words about knowing, seeing, loving, truth, and there's a lot of these words that show up in this chapter, and it's interesting that Jesus uses words like, I'm going to manifest, or I'm going to show, or I'm going to teach, and all these have to do with coming to know things, and they're often based in a word like evidence, and if you notice that the base of the word evidence is video, and videos are something that you see, vision. So ultimately what God wants is for us to see him and to know him as he is, as he sees us. So again, as we look for how to know God, we have now seen him, can we follow after him? And what evidences do we have of his love, and can we give evidence out to the world of love? So in your life, if you're feeling confused about anything, get back into where does love begin, and where is there evidence of what's real? Not just what I feel or hope is true, those are, can be good things, but how can I show through love evidence of what God is? And this actually, I think, Tyler, is true about any field of study. If you begin with love and then use good evidence to see God's love expressed through anything that's good, true, or lovely, 
we can be led aright and not be misguided by misinformation. Amen to that. So if we go to verse 7 now, he says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So he's now saying, look, if, if, you, if you really know me, then you're going to know my, going to know my Father. Look at verse 8, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? This verse and verse 10 are used frequently in a uh, Trinitarian context to say, see, there, he, he's teaching this Trinity doctrine here. Look at verse 10, believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. It feels and sounds very Trinitarian. Now we get into a, the theological aspects of Jesus's final teachings here to his apostles, and it's profound. There's this concept in scripture uh, study and teaching called proof texting. What proof texting is, is when you take one or two verses or a small section of scriptures and you pull it off of the page and then you elevate it above everything else and say, see, I've now found the text to prove my point. I'm right, and you're, you're proving that point using a, an isolated set of teachings. And we have to be careful because this doesn't just happen with scriptures. It can also happen with words of the living prophets. It would be very easy to take a sentence or a phrase or one talk and pull it out of all of the other talks and all of the other teachings that have come to us from our inspired leaders and then exalt that one teaching above all the rest and say, okay, see, here's my point, it's proved, and we end up playing doctrinal chess, if we're not careful, in, in Bible bashing or in arguments over doctrine, because we're proof texting. So our invitation as we go through here is to read all of the words that John gives us, not just isolate a few verses like that one, because you could see how easy it would be to, to teach that doctrine of the Trinity in that context. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> the word I was going to write. So the text, what goes with the text? If you don't have context, the text is just a con. What Tyler is teaching here is that we can't just look at one word or one phrase in isolation. We need to see it in this larger context. Just like you, you are not simply a single action that happens at 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. You are a larger context, and life, and God knows that. And when we offer each other grace and understand where people are coming from and their life context, we also end up not misjudging. And we want to be careful that we truly see the truth that God has provided in the text instead of imposing the meaning we think the text should be telling us. So let's look at the word that he used there repeatedly, in. So you saw that in verse 10, the Father in me, and the Father dwelleth in me. And then verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Okay? Now, 
we read on. We read all of John's uh, writing here. Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, which is an interesting concept. Father dwelleth in me, I dwell in him, but I'm now going to go unto my Father, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And now you get this incredible teaching, starting in verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. I need to just pause here and say, often members of the church will get um, questioned or even at times attacked in, in friendly ways, but, but attacked by people who say, people in your church, you, you believe that you have to do things in order to be saved. We believe we're saved by grace, and, and you have to work your way into heaven. The funny thing about that is, is if you want to proof text certain passages in the Bible, largely from the writings of Paul, you could see how that, that teaching could sound very plausible and, and reasonable. And it is true, we are saved by grace. We are totally saved by grace, but the fascinating aspect is to read the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, because Jesus never once uses the phrase, you're saved by my grace, not once. Not once does he even use the Greek word charis, which is grace, in a salvific way. He only ever uses it by saying things like, if you do nice things to those who are kind to you, what what grace is there in that? Is That's the, the way he uses the word grace. And some would say, well, wait, Jesus doesn't ever use the word grace in a salvation way? And the answer is no, not even in the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi account, does he ever use the word grace. And some would say, well, why not if it's such an important concept? I would suggest that Jesus embodies grace. His giving to us of his commandments and of his love and of his forgiveness and his mercy, he, he is embodying grace. But it doesn't mean that I can just sit back and let him embody grace and then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die as long as I've accepted him. Look at what he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Are you seeing how this doesn't have to be in opposition to or in competition with grace? that it can actually be the embodiment of his grace, that he's saying, I'm giving you commandments. It's a gift of grace from me that I'm giving you commandments so that you can know how to act, you can know how to talk, you can know what to believe. That's grace. And now, as you struggle to keep those commandments, I will forgive you. That's grace. As you are able to keep those commandments, it's because you've drawn on my power, I'm, I'm enabling you, I'm helping you to keep those commandments, that's grace. It's everywhere in the, these teachings. The fact that he's focusing on his apostles, it's grace, it's all there, even though the word isn't there. And no, we aren't working our way into heaven. We're striving to come unto Christ. It's our job to come to him with his help, and it's his job to get us to heaven. Let, let's build on this. We're talking about how to know by loving, and there's a method for doing that. You begin with love so you can know. 
And Jesus is saying, I've loved you first. Okay, I'm, I'm initiating this relationship. That's the grace. It's freely offered. And I want you to be in relationship with me. I want you to know me. And to do that, you show love by being on the path or the method of keeping commandments. And that is you demonstrating that you're in relationship with me. So look at verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Are you noticing what's included in verse 16? Jesus is going to pray to the Father that he would give you another comforter to abide with you forever. And then he clarifies, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. There's that word again, that in. So this comforter is going to be in you. So our English word comforter comes from the Latin con or con, which means with. We saw that in the word context. And fort, fort are places of strength. So what, when we get the Spirit of God, we are given strength to be with us. It's like the word Emmanuel, God with you. And the Greek word is an interesting word. It's parakletos, and it means an advocate, an intercessor, a comforter, a helper, somebody who is close beside. So para or para, think about the word parallel. So paraclete is from like the word parallel. It's right next door, and cleat comes from the word kalao, which means to call. In fact, the word ecclesiastes means to call out. The original word for church means to be called out. So the comforter is the one who is right next to you when you call out. That's amazing. You're never alone. Never. You might feel alone. All you have to do is call out, and the paraclete or the comforter is already right there with you, strengthening you. What a promise. So verse 18, he goes on to say, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And now look at verse 20. One of the reasons why we invite people to continually keep reading. Don't just stop and proof text one passage of Scripture. Read all of it. Let's look for truth and synthesize it from across the Scripture canon in the words of all the prophets. He says in verse 20, at that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, there's that in again, and ye in me, and I in you. You could connect verse 20 with verse 10, this concept of what does it mean when he says that the Father's in me and dwelleth in me and I am in the Father, what does he mean? He gives us some more clarification that in that day you'll see and know that he's in the Father and you are in him and he is in you. It's this beautiful oneness. It's not this separate nature It's or a divided nature. It's a oneness. It's a unified nature. Yeah, we have the word um, atonement or at-one-ment, the process or outcome of being at one. And I read this as covenantal, that we are now in final 
and permanent covenantal binding. Whereas while we're here in life, we are in covenant with God, but it's potentially transitory based on whether we choose to stay in there. But once we, sh- we continue to be in that relationship, ultimately God will seal it and make it permanent so that we are in him and him in us. So he goes on to say, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. You'll notice he didn't say it's anyone who just says, yeah, Jesus is my savior, they're the ones that love me. He says, no, it's the people who have my commandments and keepeth them. Those are the ones that love me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, so this would be Jude, one of his other apostles, not not the Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. He's hit this three times now in this one chapter. Just in case anybody missed the, in the case topic. In missed the first two. And it's interesting that he's not simply saying, I declare to you that I want you to simply declare me at all times. Well, it is good to declare the love of God, but it's about doing, or it's a very action-oriented. It's not enough to declare that you're a follower of Jesus, to declare that you love God, or declare that you know Jesus, or that you're a Christian. He's asking us to show that we are. And these words are so interesting. Showing, manifest, seeing. God wants us to give evidence to ourselves, to him and to others, that we are in a relationship. Not just speak it, but actually do the relationship. The purpose of sharing all of this and this concept of proof texting is so that you understand the incredibly powerful foundation of doctrinal uh, teachings that we have in the Church of Jesus Christ, that you don't need to be ashamed of, of the gospel and of the scriptures and of our, the teachings of our living prophets. You're on very, very firm ground relying on the teachings of the Savior Jesus Christ himself when, when you get into these uh, conversations or when people are disagreeing with you about salvation and where it comes from. Simply take them into John 14, 15, 16, 17 and start reading with them the entirety of some of these passages and it becomes very clear what Jesus is telling us to do, not what other people are telling us is required for salvation, but what the Savior himself, the one who's in charge of salvation, the author and the finisher of our faith, is giving us the method, the way, the epistemology, how to think about our journey of discipleship. And it's beautiful if we can clear out all of the weeds of the world and the perspectives and the philosophies that that come at us from the world and dig down to the roots of what the Savior himself is asking us to do. Pretty clear. So let's look at the opposite of this, verse 24, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So I'm not just making this up, I'm giving you the words that the Father gave to me, and the Father's the one who sent me this this mission of, of an apostle to be sent. 
uh, verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. There are your three members of the Godhead. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. It's such a beautiful, beautiful concept here. And now, one of my favorite verses of all Scripture, and it becomes even more beautiful when you put it in its context of this Last Supper, and we're we're a few verses away from leaving the upper room, and he turns to his apostles and says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Those words are so sobering because Jesus is doing more than just teaching us his gospel, he's showing us his grace, he's extending his grace, and he's revealing himself. If I ever hope to be in him and have him in me, I need to know what he is like. I need to know his attributes, his characteristics, his perfections, and he's modeling for us in this high, uh, highly anxious moment of his life when, when he could be so turned inward, he becomes even more turned outward and worried about his apostles feeling peace. That is grace embodied in the Savior Jesus Christ, and I want to be more like him, and he's given us, he's given us the blueprints by showing us example after example after example as well as teaching us the way, teaching us his words, and now it's our job to rely on him to walk that path of discipleship, the covenant path that he's laid out for us. Verse 28, he says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. He sets up an inequality here that has been debated through the ages, and it was a serious debate back at the Council of Nicaea between Athanasius and Arius, the Athanasian doctrine that, that the Son was co-equal and uh, co-eternal with the Father, and Arius saying, no, he's, he's less than the Father, and they thought that was heretic, when in reality Arius was – they said he was proof-texting because he was using verses like verse 28 to say, Jesus himself said, the Father is greater than I. And so you get these doctrinal debates. Now, was everything Arius taught accurate? No. Was everything Athanasius taught accurate? No. But they were doing the best they could with, with their perspective of saying, here's the destination, and turns out they were both off for different reasons. I even wonder, okay, so people want to intellectually debate. I wonder if they had taken their time to keep the commandments. I'm sure they were probably good, good guys but take the time to love their neighbor and to do good in the world. I just wonder, like, what if we just spent more time trying to be like Jesus? As far as we know, we never see Jesus doing these kinds of debates, ever. He's just like, I want you to love God by taking care of those around you. And he was very full of alacrity doing that. And I think sometimes we get into these modes where we want to create us versus them, and, oh, you're not part of my tribe, so you're bad, 
God's like, no, it's a whole tribe of people who just want to act in love. So I kind of feel sad we have a lot of wasted decades and centuries over debates that probably didn't help us know God better. Yeah, which now brings us to the conclusion of that uh, experience in the upper room. Verse 29, and now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. I- I've, I've prophesied these things so that when they happen, it will enhance your belief, it'll, it'll make your faith in me even stronger. Verse 30, hereafter I will not talk much with you, and then let's jump down to the Joseph Smith translation footnote. For the prince of, doctor, of darkness, who is of this world, cometh, but hath no power over me, but he hath power over you. That JST footnote is, is sobering. It's that reality, another extension of the Savior's grace. Though the, power, the prince of darkness has no power over the Savior, he's saying, he will have power over you, so you need me because I can overcome him, but you have to invite me in. You have to allow me to give you that strength to overcome the power of the, the, the darkness. And then he finishes with verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Did you catch it? Back in verse 15 he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And now in verse 31, he's telling us, as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Makes you think he probably learned that concept from his Father, saying to him, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not that the Father had to say that, but it's that same concept of Jesus modeling, do the things that you're told or asked to do by the trustworthy person whom you really love, and ultimately the first person you're supposed to love is God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, and your whole soul. So Jesus modeled that for us yet again. And now he's sitting there at that supper, it's all finished, his initial teachings are are complete, and he gives five of the most incredible words that I know of in Scripture. And at first pass you might think, what are you talking about? The words are, arise, let us go hence. You're thinking, what's so unique about that? Well, you know where hence is going to take them. You know where hence is. It's called Gethsemane. And it's not his apostles saying, okay, Jesus, your moment's come, I know this is going to be really hard, but you've got to do it, so get up, let's go, we'll walk with you. It's not them saying that to him, it's Jesus saying it to them. Arise, let us go hence. I know what I need to do, it's not going to be fun, it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to do it because it's a commandment of the Father, and I love the Father, and I'm going to keep a commandment and a covenant that I made with him and I'm going to fulfill it. He could have stayed in that comfort zone of the upper room for a long time, but he didn't. He's finished. He says, get up, let's go. Brothers and sisters, what an amazing concept for us to follow him in the way, whether that's to go and do really hard things, go on a mission, go into marriage, go into parenthood, go into a new career, 
go into a, a degree program, go into a new relationship, go into a new church calling, arise, let us go hence. The implication of that is you're not going alone. You're walking with him. Let us go hence was his invitation, once again an extension of his grace. How we love the Lord for his perfect example, for his perfect love, for his perfect grace, and for showing us what it looks like to perfectly keep the commandments and love God with all of his heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbors as himself. He's the only one who has perfectly embodied these things, and what a joy it is to strive to follow his example and to walk with him in trying to become like him. As we move forward into the chapter, pause and think again about the relationship we have with one another and with God, which I think we see expressed really well in these chapters we're about to read with Jesus. Absolutely. It is these words, these words are so sublime, they're so beautiful, especially when you keep them drenched in their historical setting, in their context of, of this night. It's, it's Passover time, so you can picture a full moon somewhere rising from the east over the, the uh, Mount of Olives. It, it might be somewhere later in, the, in that evening, you know, 10, 11, 12 p.m., somewhere in there, and we're walking up this valley, and it's not just the words, it's the word of God who's delivering these. It's not just what he says, it's how he's going to say these words, it's the intense um, connection that Jesus is going to create between him and his apostles and between him and heaven before he steps over that Kidron brook to begin his infinite atoning sacrifice in Gethsemane. So, remember that we ended the first episode this week with those final teachings in the upper room with the, fi uh, with the five words, arise, let us go hence. Now we've left, and you can picture him walking – now we don't know for sure, but the way Jesus seems to have operated throughout his ministry is using, using the, the symbols, the, the elements of life that are surrounding them to teach deep, profound gospel truths. He was the master, not just of everything, but of the master teacher. So it's possible that they're walking now through a, a vineyard of sorts on their way um, up towards Gethsemane when he starts chapter 15 with, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Can you picture this beautiful object lesson of if they are walking through a vineyard of sorts, you have these, these vines that you have this grape that grows up out of the ground, and then the vines spread out on the lines, and then the grape clusters can grow for harvest. And now here's Jesus saying to these people, I am the true vine. What does that make us? And the father is the husbandman, 
And so verse 2, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So you can picture Christ being this true vine that comes up out of the ground, that brings all of the life-giving nutrients and foundation for turning dirty water into wine. Symbolically, we're getting that 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 par- or that miracle symbolism coming through here, and he says, "And you're the branches, and my father's the husbandman. And if a branch is growing but not producing any fruit, the father is going to purge that branch, prune it, cut it off. Why? Because the nutrients and the the vine is producing the energy." not to make wood and leaves, but to produce fruit. So if it's not producing anything and it's just taking all of that energy from the root, he's going to cut it off. And if it is producing fruit, he prunes it. He cuts it back so that it will stop growing wood and start putting its, its energy into producing more grapes and sweetening those grapes more than before. It's this beautiful analogy that should remind some of you that are familiar with the the parable of the currant bush, originally told by Elder Hubie Brown and then more recently repeated by Elder D. Todd Christofferson in General Conference. Beautiful story about this currant bush that was growing like crazy and then Hubie Brown went out and chopped it off and each branch had these little uh, droplets of moisture, as if the the tree were crying, saying, why did you cut me back? Why did you do that to me? I've been trying so hard to grow. I put so much energy into these branches. And then Elder Brown's conclusion was, I'm the gardener, and I need you to be a current bush. I don't want you to be a shade tree. I I don't want you to grow wood. I want you to grow currants and a bush isn't going to grow currants if it's allowed to just keep growing wood. Hmm, I wonder if some of you who are uh, watching this can see times in your life where the Lord has perhaps come by and pruned some things out of your life that at the time was very painful, but if you trust that he knows what he's doing and that he knows how to produce fruit, then now you can put more energy into being fruitful with those things that he wants you to now focus on instead of producing more wood. He continues, he says, Now ye are clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. And Tyler mentioned that you get water that's gone through the dirt, but it gets filtered as it gets sucked up into the branches and then becomes grape juice or wine. So similarly, if we are grounded in Christ, he will clean up the nutrients that we need to come into our spiritual lives. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Now, some of you will remember the talk given by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland back in April of 2004 in General Conference when he, he spent his whole talk in, in John 15, talking about the significance of this uh, vine and fruitful analogy, and at the time, he 
he was returning from Chile or serving in Chile as the area president, a special assignment, and so Spanish was on his mind, and he pointed out that the word for abide in Spanish is permanecer, and his point was even if you don't speak Spanish, you can hear the permanence in the Spanish form of that word, permanecer. There's something permanent. If you want to be fruitful, it's not a matter of saying, okay, I'm going to remove myself from my covenant connections with Christ and I'm going to go out and enjoy the world and connect with there, and then I'll come back on Sunday or I'll, I'll connect on a big family occasion and, and, and re, re-establish that connection. The abide, permanecer, it's a permanent connection. It's, it's, it's fascinating to watch what happens in our world today where if you look at social media, if you look at some of the voices from, from the horizontal blogosphere, they'll say things like, you don't need religion, you don't need God, you don't need church, you don't need the sacrament, just be you. You don't need to wear your garments all the time, they're just optional, just whenever, whenever it's convenient. Brothers and sisters, the covenants that we make with the Lord Jesus Christ, they're intended to be binding not in a negative way but in a life-giving, fruit-producing way. We, aren't, we don't keep the, the commandments because ugh, we have to, we keep them because we love him and because by keeping them we access his grace, we access his power, we access his chesed that we've been talking about so many times in the past. This is – he is the source for us to be able to produce anything worth producing. So as we go into verse 5, I want you to pay attention to the word branch again and we'll connect it to a couple other words we've been seeing. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. So the underlying Greek word here is interesting because it is connected to a word we also use when we talk about breaking bread. Branches are something that is broken off, meaning it kind of breaks off of the main stem. And so when we think about breaking bread for sacrament, there's a linguistic connection to branches and breaking bread. Furthermore, we talked about the cleansing and the pruning. The underlying Greek word for both of those is from our English word, we get it cathartic. And it's interesting. So we have the word cleanse. It shows up here in verse, verse 3, now you're clean. Underlying Greek word is catharsis. And in verse 2, when it says to purge or to prune, also same word, catharsis. So if you want to be cleansed, there has to be a cathartic pruning that happens. We think about elsewhere in scriptures where God talks about the refining fire. Fire generally doesn't feel very good if you get burned by it, but it can have a refining influence, and this is what Jesus is talking about. As you grow, there is a need to be cleansed or purged as you continue to grow. Tying into that, look at the the next part in verse 5. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. It, it, to me, this is one of the most amazing, simple principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ is 
that in his strength I can do all things, but without him I, I'm nothing, to, to combine with Alma 26, where Ammon's giving his joyous speech. Look at verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Brothers and sisters, the decision is mine. The decision is yours. Jesus, as the true vine, is providing everything, all of the lifeblood, all of the nutrients, all of the stability that I need, that you need, to become fruitful. If we'll just trust him, it's this, uh, the, the phrase that, that keeps coming to mind is durable discipleship or enduring discipleship, this, this committed connection through our covenants with Christ where we bind ourselves to him. He's, he's provided everything, but the choice really is mine and it really is yours, what we do with that vine. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. The underlying word there for disciples, again, is learners. We are sent to this earth to learn. One of the key things is how do we discipline ourselves to be on the path that Jesus has provided? Now, we have our agency to wander wherever we want. If we want to be undisciplined, we can choose any path. But Jesus provides a very clear path, and it's a path of covenants. And it takes discipline to stay on that path. And to be a disciple means to discipline your life. So, tying into that discipline idea, if you look at, he's going to emphasize now, the concept of love. Now think about this. There are two kinds of love in English. There's the, the verb form and there's the noun form of love. So the verb form of love would be where you do things, you love people and you serve them, you bless them, you enrich their life, you're loving them by what you do. And then there's the noun part of the word love, where you feel love, you're encircled in love, you're, in, you're found in the safety of a loving relationship. So remember in the last episode, in chapter 14, he said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So if we really want to show outwardly that we love Jesus and we're, we're trying to be his disciples, learners, we're going to keep his commandments, we're going to do the things that, that he asks us to do. Now watch what happens as he shifts the focus to the noun form for us in English of the word love. Verse uh, 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. So he told us, if you love me, keep my commandments, and now he's saying, I have loved you. You should be able to feel this. You're safe. I have provided a safe place for you in my love. You can feel it. As the Father hath loved me, so I've loved you. And now watch what he says next. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love 
even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I, I don't know if he could make it any simpler. It, it is so elementary. Keep his commandments, do the things he's asked us to do, and we're going to f abide in his love and produce fruit. We're going to be able to feel of Heavenly Father's love that flows through Christ and from Christ as well to us. And then he goes one step further, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. It's a great word. Our English word plethora, plethora means just like of overabundance and overflowing abundance. That's the underlying Greek word is plethora. So <laughs> when he says full, it's actually full to abundance of spilling over. Isn't it beautiful too that in, in 35, 17, when he's with the Nephites and the Lamanites after they brought the, their sick folk and he's healed them and then they brought their children and he's blessed all of the little children one by one, he says, now my joy is full. There's so much love associated with the Savior when you see him interacting with people, especially people who are sick and, and these, these little children. And now he uses the same phrase here, that your joy might be full. He's trying to help us experience the same degrees of joy that come, that can only come from his love. And then he says, these things, oh sorry, verse 12, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. We talked about that back in John 13 as well. And now he gives a clarification, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends. If ye do whatsoever, I command you. He has now repeated this concept I, I don't know how many times. He's, he's sharing with his apostles, keep in mind, we're walking up the Kidron Valley. It's night. The full moon is, is rising. It, it's above us guiding our path up that, that Kidron Valley, and we're minutes away from Gethsemane, and he's talking about the deep love and the abiding power that can come from staying connected with him through keeping commandments because he stayed connected with God the Father through his keeping his commandments and experiencing both the verb and the noun form of love as the, the lodestar of our discipleship, guiding us on this path that leads us towards our, our mission in life and in eternity. Yeah, I think about how it's springtime, but it's still going to be quite chilly. So it's evening, the sun's already gone down, and they have all eaten a meal, and so the blood's probably in here working on that meal, and yet they're under normal circumstances, you'd probably feel quite chilly. I can imagine they would be feeling the warmth of his love as they walk on this very chilly night through this foliage of the, of the vineyard. Let's build on 14. Actually, read it again and re listen to verse 15. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, it's interesting, the underlying Greek word for servant 
actually could be translated as a slave. And he's saying, you guys are not slaves. Even though I give you guys commandments, it's out of love, and it's an invitation for you to be disciplined or to become a disciple, to be in love with me. But you're not a servant. You're not a slave. You're a friend. And it turns out in Greek, there's actually four words for uh, love. The ones that we've been seeing a lot is agape. It's another one called storge, and I'll talk about these in just a minute. Storge is kind of like love of parents for children. And then there's eros, which is kind of romantic love. And then you have... Um, uh, Philos. Philos, you get it like in the word like Philadelphia. And these are the two words we've seen most often in the Greek here. So when he keeps talking about, I have loved you, your father loves you, love one another, it's often the agape, which is this enduring, covenantal, deeply relational love. And philos is the love among friends who are committed to one another. And so Jesus is going back and forth, and specifically here in verse 15 and 14, he's saying, you are my friends. And this word, instead of translating it as friend, you could translate it as, you are somebody that I love. Now, we use the word friend, but technically in Greek, it simply means love or somebody I love. So this chapter and other chapters here in John are just saturated with this concept of love. So let's say this again. If you were out and about on the street and asked people what their sense of, of what the Bible was all about, would this be the first word they come up with? I hope so. But my experience is a lot of people think, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament's kind of angry and then Jesus Christ kind of fixes it all. And it turns out the purpose of scriptures, one of the major purposes, is to express and record God's love and to model for people how that love operates, these covenantal relationships. So I just get so excited by this because the words just jump out and you can almost feel the embrace from God as you're reading these that all I want is to be in this loving relationship with you so you can experience an overabundance, a plethora of joy that I've prepared for you. I love that, especially, in, again, in this context of these 11 apostles walking up that Kidron Valley with him, and they don't have a clue what he's about to go through. He has a pretty good idea, but he's still talking about these things and, and helping them feel of his love and inviting them to love one another and to, to follow his example. Verse 16, ye have not chosen me but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. I love that, that he's saying, I was the one who chose you, and now will you just love me? Will, will you choose me in return? Will you choose to follow my commandments in return? When he says choose, he uses the Greek word ek logos or ek lego, ek it's like from the word exit, and legos is to speak, like I speak or I call you out. And then he uses this word here, uh, the whatever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Other translations use the English word appoint to you. But the underlying word 
is related to the same word that is used for laying down my life. It's very interesting that Jesus is securing all of our requests of righteousness, which are appointed to us by appointing his life or laying it down on our behalf. So it's just interesting things going on linguistically with the underlying uh, Greek. Now in the, the rest of this chapter, he gives us the, the contrast, the, the counter option of, of what the world is going to do. It's the opposite, the counter of love. It's hate. So verse 18, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It's a really interesting word. Um, uh, Misieo, which means uh, misery. The word that we have in English of misery comes from this word. So the hate really could be misery. People feel misery about you. Like, why would you want to hang out with those people? And why would you want to listen to them or give heed to them? Lehi, in the, in the dream that he had in 1 Nephi 8, I love his phrase, when those fingers of scorn and, and misery are pointing at him, mocking him, he says, but we heeded them not. I believe it was Elder Neil A. Maxwell who once said, when mocking fingers point at you, follow their directions, which is basically turn around and walk away. Follow their directions. Don't, don't engage. It's, it's not worth it at that point. So he, he continues on with that discussion of, of these struggles that they're going to face, and then he goes to verse 26, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall be, bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. He's now clarifying what that apostolic calling is going to mean for these eleven men called to be apostles, to bear witness of his name in all the world. They, they are witnesses of his life, of, of his uh, perfection, and ultimately uh, going to be of his death and resurrection. So for the sake of time, we're going to go very quickly through chapter 16 here and just grab a couple of verses along the way to spend some more time in chapter 17. If you look at verse 7, he shares an insight that many people have puzzled over for, for millennia. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. You've probably heard a lot of people give different explanations about what that means of why, why couldn't the, the comforter be there when the Savior's there. It's important, I think, here to recognize that there's a distinct difference in, in our uh, doctrine, a difference between the power of the Holy Ghost and the gift of the Holy Ghost in that earlier on in his ministry he told Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. There's this spirit of truth, spirit of revelation that has been acting throughout the Savior's ministry, but it seems that the full power of the Holy Ghost as it manifests in the gift of the Holy Ghost 
for whatever reason, wouldn't come into full action until after his ascension, and it seems to happen over in Acts chapter 2 with the Feast of the Pentecost, that, that incredible outpouring of the Holy Ghost at the um, that Pentecost event in Jerusalem with Peter in chapter 2. And then he talks about what that comforter is going to do when he comes in verse 8, 9, 10, all the way down. Look at verse 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. It's a beautiful promise that when the Holy Ghost comes, he's not going to come drawing attention to himself. He's going to come to guide you to the Savior and to bear testimony of Heavenly Father as well, to bring you to those other two members of the Godhead. It's such a beautiful uh, such a beautiful thing to consider for teachers, for parents, for leaders, for true friends, to, to follow that example of the Holy Ghost, to when you come, when you teach, it's, it's not to draw attention to you, it's not to bring people to you selfishly, it's to bring them to Christ, to testify of him who was crucified and, and God the Father. It's, it's to pass them along and our relationship with them is actually strengthened when we do that. Our love for them is enriched and deepened and it becomes more, more eternal. And I love that phrase from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, that says that same sociality that exists among us here will exist among us there. The only difference is there, it will be coupled with eternal glory. And it's such a beautiful pattern for us to try to, to mirror in our own relationships. It's like that word friendship that we've been talking about, phileos, that will have that sociality, that love that has bound us together. Now, let's jump down to the, the very end, and we're skipping some really, really beautiful verses here, but for the sake of time, let's go down to verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This is interesting because when he goes into Gethsemane, it's as if the Father is removed from him, uh, perhaps casting a veil over him at that point. But at this moment, standing at the top of the Kidron Valley, ready to go into Gethsemane, he's saying, you're all going to scatter and leave me, but I'm, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. It's fascinating that from the time he goes into Gethsemane, it seems that he is treading the winepress alone to the point where the most heartfelt soul-wrenching prayer of all time is going to be uttered by him the next day in the afternoon at around 3 p.m. on the cross when he's going to, to call out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsake, forsaken me? Here in this moment he's saying, the Father is with me. It's almost as if uh, he 
wasn't aware or wasn't uh, notified that this was going to be one of the elements of the infinite atoning sacrifice is he was going to be cut off from the presence of the Father, uh, which is one of the elements of suffering through the pains of hell for and in behalf of us to overcome the, the bands of hell for us. And then look at verse 33, one of the most amazing verses. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. He's literally at this point moments away from losing all peace, but he's telling them and reassuring them that they will have peace in him. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If it's been a while since you've last read President Russell M. Nelson's October 2022 conference address called Overcome the World and Find Rest, we invite you to revisit that talk. It ties in beautifully with Jesus here saying, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Listen to this. I want to share just one little paragraph with you from that talk and ponder what is the Lord doing with you, with your loved ones, with the world moving forward. Listen to this paragraph from that talk. My dear brothers and sisters, so many wonderful things are ahead. In the coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. And those two words, greatest and ever, are italicized. President Nelson is very careful with his words. Between now and the time he returns with power and great glory, he will bestow countless privileges, blessings, and miracles upon the faithful. Sounds like the Lord is saying to us through his prophet very similar things as he said to his apostles 2,000 years ago in the Kidron Valley on the threshold of beginning his infinite atonement. Near the end of his life, he's expressing courage. This is the underlying word for being of good cheer. It's have courage. Look around. God is with us. Sometimes it feels like there's chaos, but ultimately we have the creator of heaven and earth on our side. We can have total courage. So now we jump into chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer or the intercessory prayer. To intercede is to go between. He is our, our, our intercessor with the Father. And so he begins this prayer in such a beautiful way. These words spake Jesus and lifted, his eye, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. On the moment before he goes in to begin that atoning sacrifice, he's turning to God for God's glory to be magnified. That's what he's praying. 
as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And then he clarifies for us what it means to be saved, what, it, what, it, what eternal life is, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's a powerful definition. Yeah. When I was before my mission, I didn't understand the different meanings of the word no. And serving a Spanish speaking mission, there were two words for knowing, and it took me a little bit to get used to when to use each word. Now, this will not be on the final exam, but uh, this word saber means to know something like to know facts. So, for example, the sky is blue. Sky is blue. I know that your name is. Tyler, even though sometimes I get mistaken by my own name. Conocer means to actually know someone intimately, to be in relationship to that person. And the underlying Greek word that we see here produces the Spanish word conocer. When, God, when Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, it's not simply knowing facts about God. And having spent a lot of years in biblical studies learning lots of really great things, but a lot of it was saber, it was facts about God, facts about the Bible. Ultimately, it's to intimately be acquainted with somebody. And that is what God is looking for in relationship with us. He wants us to be intimately connected to us. Real friends know one another. They don't simply know about them. So if you have a choice in your life, and luckily we don't usually have to make a choice like this, between learning about God or learning to know God. So you can know about God or know God, always choose to know God first. And he can reveal all the other factual details later. That's powerful. Now, as we start into verse 4, it's as if the Savior is, is giving a report of his ministry to the, to the Father. Look at, look at what he says here, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, before he condescended and, and shed his, his godly capacities and, and position up in heaven to come down and be a lowly babe in the uh, manger of Bethlehem. This underlying word finished is teleos, which we sometimes translate as perfected, completed, or finished for a very purposeful reason. And God actually wants to perfect us in the sense that he wants to bring us also to a purposeful state or situation or conclusion and also provide a report like we have going on here. Yeah. So he's, he's going to finish his report down in verse 6, 7, and 8, as you read those on your own, and then you come to verse 9 where he starts to make his petition, a very, uh, a very powerful petition that involves us and it involves some deep theology here. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine and all mine are thine, 
and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. You'll notice if you come unto Christ, what does he do? He will clean you. He will polish you. He will refine you. He will purify you. He will justify you. Then he will sanctify you. He will clean us up every whit and then present us spotless before the Father. He will do things for us that we can't do for each other and we clearly can't do for ourselves. And then he says, verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name these whom thou hast chosen, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we. And you'll notice the, the word are is italicized there. It, it's, it's not in the Greek text. It's, it's added to make it feel like a more complete English sentence by the, the King James translators. But did you catch that? His prayer to God was that his disciples could become one as he and the Father are one. It didn't mean that they were going to enter into some relationship that was beyond mortal comprehension. It meant this unity that comes from a belonging in a covenant community of all these people joining together in their love for Christ, their love for Heavenly Father, and their love for each other, this oneness that the world seems to, to uh, fight against and create division and contention and borders and fighting over every idea or, or political movement or uh, philosophy that comes along, it's totally in contrast to what Jesus is describing here. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. But the set of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the word kept here actually means to be guarded protected, watched over, really great word. And the son of perdition, it's just a fancy word for the word perdido in Latin means to be lost. And so people who choose to walk away are lost. They're always called, the tree of life is always there, the rod's always there, Jesus is always sending out messengers to helpless people find their way back. But anybody who consistently and persistently, really forever, chooses to be lost, to lose themselves from God, becomes perdido, they become lost. Now, I think it's important for us to point out here that we've had many prophets and apostles clarify that you don't need to, to worry about your children or your loved ones becoming sons of perdition because they've, they've gone off the deep end. That is, that is a very rare uh, exception. Uh, the way Joseph Smith described it is, is using words along the lines of a person has to be walking in noonday sun looking around saying, what light? All is darkness to me. And to do that persistently, persistently and consistently over generations and generations. And I want to echo what Tyler says here is that sometimes we get fixated because we, we, nobody wants to get lost. Anybody who loves God doesn't want to be lost, doesn't want to see anybody be lost. And we do worry at times for people. And I think we need to step back and say, 
God's mercy and his ability to find those who are temporarily lost, not permanently lost. When we talk about sons of perdition, I think that's a difference. We're talking about somebody who is permanently lost. Of their own choice. Of their own choice. And I think all of us experience being lost every now and then, some people for a little longer than others. My personal opinion is is that uh, very few will be permanently lost among those that you know and love, and just among God's children. Most people really want to have lives of goodness and be connected to God, even though we might wander. Now let's jump down to verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. It's that idea of living in the world but not being of the world. It's overcoming the world and finding finding hope, finding peace, finding love, that we're, we're here, we're in a very difficult environment, a very high degree of difficulty in our mortal uh, existence. Look at verse 16, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And now we come into what I consider to be the most beautiful doctrinal goldmine concerning our doctrine of the Godhead of anything in the Bible. I think this is, this is the pinnacle for me, personally. Listen carefully to Jesus' prayer at this point. Verse 19, and for their sakes, he's speaking of his eleven apostles standing right there with him at the top of the Kidron Valley, here's the brook, on the other side towards the east, this, this slope going up, there's Gethsemane. That's where he's headed here in a few verses. And he says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Did you catch that? As a leader, as a parent, as a friend, what you, how you choose to live your life, the sanctification that you seek has an effect on people in your circle of influence. You want to be a better parent? You want to be a better teacher? Start perhaps by loving the Lord more, by keeping his commandments more diligently and pleading with, with the Lord for more help to do that, and then your capacity to be able to teach and lead will grow because the best teachers come from the best students. The best leaders are made out of the best followers and the best disciples. So if, if you want to help people, perhaps plead initially for the Lord to help you be more faithful and diligent. Now, notice how he continues, neither pray I for these alone. I'm not just praying for these eleven apostles standing here with me but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. I don't know about you, but I circled the word them and I wrote in the margin, me included, because I believe on Jesus Christ through the testimony of those original twelve apostles and our current living prophets and apostles. I believe on him. I know he's real. Now, verse 21, 
that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me." So you have the Father, you have the Son, you have all of us down here. You'll notice his prayer that they can all be one as we are one, that they can be one in us. It's this verse 21, I'm telling you, it takes the cake as far as the, the theological verses of Scripture to describe those relationships that Jesus is trying to help us figure out what it means to be one with each other and with God, to not live in isolation like the devils do, to not live in a state of misery and contention like Lucifer and his, his followers uh, persist to live in. And then the solution or the, the outcome is, verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I guess I would just pause here and say, brothers and sisters, don't ever feel uh, embarrassed about our, our theology. Don't ever feel apologetic about our belief in the first article of faith. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. That is, that is a very powerful foundation for our faith that these three are perfectly united in one, and their whole mission is through the mission of the Holy Ghost now to help us figure out that same kind of unity and to find that, that safety in their love and be, grow into that oneness with them. It's such a profound, um, such a profound doctrine that we teach. You don't need to be afraid of, of those discussions. Now as we conclude his prayer, look at verse 23, I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. <sighs> he is unlike anybody else. He has all this power, all this capacity, and all he wants to do is give the glory to the Father and share all that he has with us. How I love the Lord, how I want to be more like him. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Remember what he said back in verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He's giving us a precursor to that from his own perspective. I have known thee, righteous Father, verse 26, and I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. What a prayer. 
there was never another prayer offered uh, to, to top this one, the intercessory prayer. And now, chapter 18 is going to say, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. In closing, brothers and sisters, you have more than Heavenly Father who's looking down at you, smiling at you. As your Father that holds worlds without number in his hands, you're his daughter, you're his son. Oh, how he loves you perfectly, but you also have the Savior who is looking down at you filled with agape, filled with all of the verb forms of the nouns to love you, and if we'll just trust him and abide in him, his promise is he will permanecer, he will permanently abide with us and provide us with all of the life that we need to be fruitful and to find our mission in life fulfilled, and once again from President Nelson's talk, in coming days we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. I love the Lord, and he loves you, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.